So there's not an, a lot in recent years, or the recent past, I should say, that I would, that I would label as entertaining, <laughs> right? Like soul-sucking or productivity-stealing, maybe, but not, not really entertaining. But one thing I've actually found quite entertaining is what we've learned over recent months and over this past year or so is some of the misinformation <laughs> that we've found out about. Like things that we thought to be true, but they are no longer true. And whether it be about the pandemic or COVID or maybe the political cycle, just we've learned some stuff. Now, you guys are a shrewd bunch. I mean, you're smart people. So I, I, I'm pretty sure nobody in here was duped by anything. Like you didn't fall for nothing. You guys are really smart. But I, I will tell you, I do have a couple coworkers, some office mates, who have yet to admit that maybe, I mean, just maybe QAnon wasn't the most reliable source of information. I mean, they've yet to, I'm sure they will at some point. But as fun as it would be to kind of, go through all the different things that we've learned or all the different stories that we heard that turned out to not be true. It might be a little heavy. There might be some, you know, fists thrown. I don't want to get anybody's blood boiling and we all have different opinions, I'm sure. But I do have a quick list of far less controversial pieces of misinformation. Things that we either grew up believing or you may currently believe right now, but actually just aren't true. And this first one I kind of like a lot. This first one is that coffee dehydrates you. Like, We've all been taught that, or I'm sure you've heard it at one point. And it's true, caffeine does have a small dehydrating effect, but it's severely outweighed by the amount of water that's in coffee. I actually always wondered, I'm like, what happens to the water as it goes through the coffee? Does it no longer become water? Why is it so dehydrating? So it's not. You're fine. Drink as much as you want. Uh, Second one is this. Uh, Carrots improve your vision. This is another one. It's just not true. Like, yes, carrots do have beta carotene, which does turn into vitamin A in your body, which theoretically does help your vision. But your threshold for beta carotene is so low that you, you probably have already hit it in whatever else you're eating. And so carrots do nothing except taste gross. So you, you don't have to eat carrots. <laughs> they don't do anything for you. Uh, this next one, we've all heard this, I'm sure, that we, that we use 10% of our brains, right? And I'm sure you're looking at the person next to you and thinking 10%, that's pretty generous, really, I, <laughs> if we're being honest. But it's actually not true at all. I mean, we, we do actually use pretty much our entire brain at all times just to keep our body functioning. So just so you know that. Now this fourth one. Now, you guys know that when I preach, I, if, I can, if I can hit on Ronnie a little bit, if I can make fun of him, make you laugh about him, I do that I, I, every time, if I can. Well, this time, you know, he's just got some rough stuff going on in his life. It's busy for him. And so this isn't not to make fun of him. But this one is, you know, for Ronnie, that shaved hair grows back thicker. I'm sure you've heard that. Well, Thankfully for Ronnie, he can, he, can, he can get rid of that anxiety that if he ever stops shaving, he'll look like Chewbacca or something. It's just not true, Ronnie. But actually, just so you know, I, I did have a fifth picture that I wanted to, to show kind of as a joke. But, so I searched for man with excessive body hair. Don't do that. That's just, just as a free one for you today, just some information for you. Don't search for man with excessive body hair. Well, we're actually in week two of our series, Won't Back Down, and and what we're talking about in this series is, is technically a little strange. Actually, it's a, it's a lot strange, if I'm being honest. But if, if you're honest with yourself and with me, no matter how strange it may sound, and no matter where you may be on, on kind of the faith and belief spectrum, uh, I think you actually know this to be true on some level, that we are in a battle now, you may not use the same words that we do, that I do today. You, you may not talk about unseen or spiritual or anything like that, but, but you felt it, I'm sure. Like, you've looked at the world and you've seen that things aren't right, that there seems to be something against 
the world or all you have to do is open social media and you know that things just don't seem to be right and maybe even more personal, more local for you just in your own life. Like the circles that you walk in and the things that you deal with, you, you just feel like there's something against you. And you, you know intrinsically that there's a battle, there's something going on. Uh, the Christian author C.S. Lewis, he actually said this about it. He said, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church, the body of believers in Ephesus, he says it a little bit different, but it really kind of has the same meaning. He says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against him or her or them or even really ourselves. And Ronnie did a great job, a masterful job of breaking down this passage last week. I really suggest you go back and watch that. But it's against the rulers, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, according to the writers of Scripture, Jesus came to forgive us our violation of sin that has kept us separated from God. Jesus came to redeem, restore, and reconcile our broken relationship with our Heavenly Father. <laughs> Jesus came to usher in God's love, His hope, His peace, His salvation, redemption, His healing, ultimately to usher in God's kingdom. And Jesus came to give you life. Jesus came to give you life, abundant, fulfilling life to the full. And Satan, our enemy, our adversary, whatever word you want to use, he's the chief enemy. And he fights to spoil all of that. Uh, Satan fights to oppose God however he can. Uh, to prevent the work of Jesus in this world and in your life. Satan fights to advance evil and hopelessness and injustice and hatred. Satan fights to fill creation with despair, darkness, and disease. And Satan fights to deceive you. Satan fights to lie to you, to destroy you. As weird as it may sound, as unbelievable as it may be for you, and I'm sure you're debating me, in your brain right now, and you're probably winning, I'm sure. You have an enemy who is against you, and he's attacking you, and who is constantly working to keep you from putting your faith in the one who came to save you. He's constantly working to keep you from putting your faith and trust in Jesus. He wants to take away your opportunity of full life. He wants to ruin your opportunity to spend eternity with your heavenly father. And let me be honest with you. If you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, it's just the truth. He's winning. He's winning in your life right now. And if you put your faith in Jesus, don't think for a second that he's conceded the battle. He's working as hard as ever to take your life. Not your physical life, for sure, but a full, meaningful, God-glorifying life. He knows that he's lost the ultimate battle. Uh, he knows that your eternity is set. He's not fighting for that anymore. If, but if he can take you out, if he can take out your marriage, if he can fight against your hope, if he can fill you with anxiety, if he can keep you from glorifying God in your life, he's going to fight for that. And he doesn't want you following God or bringing glory 
to God. We are in a battle daily. And so we must daily prepare for battle. But how do we prepare for battle? Well, Paul goes on to tell us this. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand firm. It's a good thing I've got scripture memorized, right? Just <laughs> and our first piece of armor today that we're going to be talking about. Verse 14, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Truth, it seems like such a simple concept. It, it is or it isn't. It's black or it's white. It's good or bad. It's right. Or is it wrong? Or is it right or wrong? I, I don't know. You, you decide. And just like that, what seems so simple, what seems so solid becomes quite fragile. And in that moment, that's the only foothold the enemy needs. That's the foundation of his battle plan. And it has been from the very beginning of time. Let me show you what I mean. We're going we're to look back at the very, very beginning. It's actually the story, the, the Hebrew creation narrative in Genesis 1 through 3. It's the story of the origins of the world and humanity. It's, it's the story of Adam and Eve. And, and I know you're probably, some of you are probably thinking, come on, dude. You, you can't tell me you actually believe that story. You do realize there's a talking snake in that story. And yeah, I get it. I actually totally understand why people would struggle to embrace and believe that story. But before you dismiss it, before you dismiss it based on scientific theory or progressive reasoning that, that labels it just a fairy tale, I'd actually like to ask you to do something for me because we're such good friends. Would you do it for me? Over the next 30 minutes, would you lean in a little bit? Just, just maybe set some of those doubts and those concerns aside or your objections to the validity of it. Just set it aside for a second. You can pick it back up when we're done. But just set it aside and think critically about this story with me. You see, some consider Genesis to be historical fact. It is what it is. That's exactly how it happened. Some people think it's metaphorical. It's just kind of placing out an idea of what, what possibly could have happened. Other things, others think it's myth altogether. But, but that's only a debate about the genre of the literature. I, I'm not interested in that debate. I don't like literature that much. I, I want to talk about what the story means. You see, because the value of every story is what it means for you and what it means for me. See, Genesis was written to the people of Israel right after they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. And Moses' goal wasn't to tell them how the world was created, but who was behind it and the reasons why the world is the way it is. You see, Moses wanted to reintroduce the Hebrew people, later known as the Jews, to their creator. He wanted to reintroduce them to their ultimate authority. Because he knew and, and he knows that your ultimate authority determines your truth. See, we're going to read out of chapter 3, but let me catch you up a little bit about what's been going on. After creating the man and the woman, uh, Creator God provides for them a home in the Garden of Eden with two directives. Fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue the earth and procreate a lot. It sounds like a fulfilling career to me. I think I can handle that one. And, and it gives them only one thing. Only one thing not to do, and we read about that in Genesis 2. He says this, you must not eat 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And we actually find out a little bit later that the tree is dead center in the middle of the garden. They all knew where it was. It, it, there was no chance of an oops, I ate the wrong fruit moment for them. They knew where it was. And right in chapter 3, we're introduced to a brand new character. That character enters the story this way. Now the serpent, who we know is Satan, our adversary, the enemy, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the word crafty, actually, it can be translated a few different ways. In fact, in Scripture, it's, it's translated this way in a few other places. It can mean cunning or subtle or deceptive. This is actually the perfect description of his approach towards Eve, who's simply enjoying paradise. He's simply enjoying frolicking naked through paradise, as I would, as you may. And he comes subtly and cunning. And he says this, he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? It's highly doubtful that the serpent was misinformed about God's instruction. Uh, we can be pretty sure that he knew what was going on. What's interesting is his first attack was directed at God's word. He could have attacked anything. Really, he could have attacked her insecurities as a woman. He could have attacked her relationship with Adam. Adam doesn't love you. Those are my best snake sounds. I hope you're okay with them. Here we go. He's sick of talking about his feelings. He liked it better when it was just him and the monkeys. <laughs> he wants his rib back. <laughs> like that would have been great. He could have, he could have done that. But the serpent, he attacked Eve with an idea. It's actually the first of three components that I think he used as his strategy to deceive her. He started with a deceptive idea. See, he gets Eve to question God's directions to her. When he says, did God really say? He's suggesting that maybe you got it wrong. Or possibly he, he got it wrong. But the, the woman responds like this. She said, no, no, no. That's not what God said. She goes on to say, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You see, the serpent's deception has already shifted the woman's perspective. Subtly, of course. Eve negatively modifies what God told her which is evidence of the fact that she has a negative progression in her view of God's instruction to her. God never said she couldn't touch the fruit. He just said that she couldn't eat from the tree or she would die. And see, the serpent, he sees the opening and he strikes again. And he says this, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open." And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And see, the serpent offers more deceptive ideas. And ironically, they're mostly true. You know, this is the basis for the most effective lies are lies that, that have just enough truth to them to make them seem believable. 
Because if they were so outrageous that you couldn't believe them, well, you wouldn't fall for them. He says, you will not certainly die. I mean, you might die, but not immediately. And later we know that she actually does take the fruit and eat it. And, and so he says, your, your eyes were open. And her eyes were open, but they were open to the shame of her nakedness. And they would come to know not only good, but evil as well. You see, there's something else super important going on here, super important for us. Is the enemy is playing into Eve's desire to be like God. See, her desire was for her to be her own authority. To be her own determiner of truth for herself. You see, it's important to know that the enemy does not have the power of creation. He can't create anything. He only has the power of distortion. So his deceptive ideas play into distorted desires. We all have God-given desires. We desire to know and to be known. We, we have a desire for purpose in our life. We have a desire for adventure. We all certainly have a desire for intimacy. And the enemy attacks these things through distortion. When he plants an idea of how you can satisfy a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. I, I bet you'd experience this progression in your own life. And, and if not in your life, then certainly seeing it in our society. You see, we just change what we know to be true to fit what we need to be true so we can fulfill our own desires. See, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. See, Eve saw something. She saw something that on the surface seemed like it was good. It was pleasing to her eye and it was desirable. It was desirable in terms of what she thought she might gain. So she took the bait and she ate it. And she gave some to the man. So the enemy's strategy, it's finally complete. His deceptive ideas played into distorted desires, which eventually led to destructive behaviors. And it's in the center of these circles. It's right in the center of these circles is the enemy's sweet spot. Where you and where I, we begin to believe an idea and it, and it plays into a strong desire and it leads over and over to distorted and destructive behavior. Maybe in your own life. Like you, maybe you've seen this pattern in your life. Maybe you've dealt with addiction or alcoholism or, or struggled with something that you see the pattern. In your, maybe in your marriage. You've seen this play out in the way that he's trying to destroy your marriage or in your finances or even in your health. See, this is how the enemy steals. This is how the enemy kills. This is how he destroys. And this is how the enemy does battle. And so spoiler alert, if you don't know the story, they die at the end. So on that happy note, let's continue on. Uh, let's talk about where everything went wrong. You see, everything went wrong when the serpent, when Satan, when our deceiver got Eve to doubt and question one thing. The authority of God. See, one of the biggest wins for the enemy is if he can get you to question God's authority. And specifically for us, what's very important today, his authority on what is true. 
You see, once we question, we're, we're vulnerable and open, and we open up ourselves to deceptive ideas and to lies and to misinformation. Misinformation about reality and unreality, what's real and what's true. Now, something extraordinary about humanity is our, our capacity to hold both reality and unreality in our minds at the same time. We're the only ones who can do that. Some of you have done that. I've done that. You started a business where at one point it wasn't real. It didn't exist. And you put the work in to create something and you made something real out of something that wasn't real. Or if you're an artist, you know this to be true too. Like you have a blank canvas and you get started on something. And by the end, you've taken something that didn't exist and you've made it exist. You've taken something that wasn't real and you've made it real. There's a, there's a problem with this though. There are certain things that we think are possible that actually aren't possible. Or we think that things are true that actually aren't true. The author, John Mark Comer, he explains it this way. I think this helps a lot. Our capacity to hold unreality in our minds is our genius, but it's also our Achilles heel. Because not only can we imagine unreality, but we can also come to believe in it. We can put our faith in ideas that are untrue or worse, that are lies. And it's so easy to see this in our cultural wars today. We've got the left and we've got the right. We've got conservatives and liberals, and they all have a web of ideas that they present as true information. But all the facts, they don't correspond to what's real. See, news as it once existed has completely vanished, and we've abandoned a shared sense of reality, opting instead for alternate truths and alternate facts that fit our personal, social, and political ideologies. You see, the greatest threat to our society is the attack on a shared sense of trust and a baseline of facts. Now, that doesn't just open the door for misinformation. That blows the doors off the hinges to misinformation. In 1951, the author Hannah Arden released a book titled The Origins of Totalitarianism. I know you have it. It's probably on your nightstand. But so if you know this, just sit back. Uh, it's about the Nazi regime, and it's really about totalitarianism as a whole. That's a hard word to say multiple times if you don't know that. Totalitarianism is really just an idea that, that a government can completely take over, like really take away all your freedoms, have complete control of you. And she says this, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exists. Okay, I know that I went on a little political thing there. I'm not a political guy. I don't want to freak anybody out. But it, here, here's the idea. Here's my point. My point is this. Misinformation, deceptive ideas, lies have always been about gaining power and control over you. And our enemy laid the foundation for it in the garden. And it's still his greatest weapon today. And so without God as your ultimate authority to determine ultimate truth, you're ultimately going to be deceived and controlled. But see, my interest is not in who's controlling the misinformation and the cultural wars today. <laughs> my interest is in who's controlling the misinformation in your life and in your heart and who's playing into your desires and leading you towards destructive ways of living.
What I'm most concerned with, who is the ultimate authority in your life regarding what is true? Is it you? Is it God? Because your ultimate authority will determine your truth. Who's true? Who determines what is true when it comes to current cultural ideas? Who determines what is true when it comes to your deepest desires? Who determines truth when it comes to your marriage? Who determines truth when it comes to your sexuality or, or maybe the best way to live your life? Who's determining what is true for you? Is, see, the, the enemy is trying to plant deceptive ideas in your mind that, that, that will play into distorted desires. And if you let him, if you let him, he's going to lead you to destructive behavior because that's all he wants for you. But with God firmly seated as the ultimate authority, we have ultimate truth to live by. We prepare to battle against the enemy's schemes by daily fastening the belt of truth. So how, how do we daily fasten the belt of truth? I have no idea. Would you pray with me? This I really, I, I kind of wanted to write, I, it is tough, but I, I did come up with a few things that I think could be helpful for you. The first one is this, knowing scripture. You see, knowing scripture, knowing the truths about God's principles, knowing the truths of his promises and his ways are the only way we can know truth at all. It can only be known through his word. Without that knowledge, it's impossible to detect deception in the first place. This is why it's relevant. This is why we want you to be here on Sunday mornings because we're so committed to biblical teaching. But not just biblical teaching, as you've heard us say over and over again. We're committed to practical biblical teaching. See, knowledge about the word of God has great value for sure. But that value is increased by multiples when you actually learn to apply it, which brings us to our second thing. You've got to walk in it. To fasten the belt of truth, you've got to walk in the truth that you know. See, when you know truth and you've been here or you've been reading on your own and, or you're at your tea life group and you learn to apply that truth, you have to commit to walk in it. As you go throughout your week, as you go throughout this week, I can promise you, you'll be confronted with situations, opportunities, temptations, Things that you'll know the truth about what you should or should not do. And tell me, does just knowing what you should do do you any good? Knowing the truth alone is useless. You've, you've got to commit to walking in that truth. And if you're presented with a situation, if, if things go on in your life, an opportunity or a temptation comes up, and you're unsure about what true is, well, that brings us to number three. Go back to number one. See, our story today, our story today is about the origination of human life. How it evolved into its current state, where we believe it all began, and where we believe it all went wrong. You see, what got twisted in the beginning is this desire to be like God. Because you, me, we were created in his image, and it's been distorted into a desire to be God. 
to be the God of our own lives. Maybe not the God. Certainly there's a few people out there in the world that want to be the God and rule everything, but they're, we're considered, they're considered crazy. No, no, no. We want, we want to have ultimate authority and control. And we want the ability to define our reality and to determine our own truth. Can't you f- feel that? I mean, I feel that. There's a little bit of all that in all of us. So let me ask you, who is your ultimate authority? You owe it to yourself to answer that question honestly. Like, I, you don't need to answer it for me. You're not trying to oppress me or anybody else. It's, it's about you. You need to answer that question for you. Is it you? Is it logic or reason? And if so, whose logic and whose reason? Is it your feelings? Is it science or maybe chance? Who is your ultimate authority? Who do you trust when it comes to finding out the truth about your happiness? To find out the truth about how to have hope and peace? Who's the authority about truth when it comes to your finances and your business and how to lead your family? You see, you, you're in a battle. You don't get to choose whether you're in the battle. You have a very real, very present enemy trying to take you out. And you're not strong enough to fight them on your own. If you remember this slide from last week, you need Jesus to go before you. You need Jesus to stand in the gap between you and your enemy and fight for you. When you put on the armor of God, you're putting Jesus in that place. You need his ultimate authority to be the determiner of your truth in your life. Because that is the only way to stand firm. Would you pray with me? Uh, for those of you in the room who, have, who maybe as I talked today, it became clear to you that you have been your own authority. Maybe it became clear to you that, that you are the one determining truth in your life. And maybe there was a sense of understanding that that's not going so well for you. Maybe you have a desire to experience the authority of somebody else. Maybe you're ready to experience and following Jesus and his authority. And if that's you today, you can pray pray this prayer with me this morning. Say, Jesus, I'm ready to make you my ultimate authority. Jesus, I'm ready to have you forgive my sins. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. God, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. We're grateful for the way that it speaks to us. We're grateful for the way that it dissects us and changes us. I pray that as we've sat in this room that you've spoken to hearts individually. That as individuals, we're ready to walk out these doors as your church to live more like you and for you in this world. Jesus, we love you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.